Well, Julia Moore, welcome to the journey. And uh, so let me let me just share a little bit about what the journey is about. Uh, the journey is. Uh, uh, a platform in which we just have guests on that are just ordinary people who may have had something happen in their lifetime where um, it, it uh, either was either a personal setback for themselves or maybe something that happened within uh, either a friend circle or a family circle or somehow they were exposed to something that as a result of that, then uh, it changed them. And they ended up saying, I now need to do something different. And so I know that we we met just recently, not too long ago. And um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a little bit when we tell the story, but I wanna first welcome you uh, to the journey and to our listeners. And uh, we, I start off usually with um, asking not only just a little bit about who you are as a person, but um, what do you do for fun? When Julie has an opportunity for fun, what does Julie do? Oh, wow. What do I do for fun? Sometimes people probably don't think what I do for fun is fun. My husband and I, we really like to dig in deep and we like to do rentals. We like to do flips. We like to remodel. We always have a project going um, so that's kind of what we do for fun. We're both very busy people and we tend to, if we just sit around, we get a little crappy. So we always have something going on and people say, don't you ever give them a rest? And that's just totally, that's our relaxation. That's our hobby. That's what we like to do. Gotcha. Okay. And, and I know that you just, just, just over the weekend, you had a, a pretty special, uh, a special event happened. Your son got married over the weekend. So congratulations. And, uh, and, and how many children do you have? I have two. Carly, she lives out in Rapid City, South Dakota. She's in marketing and communication and she is married and she has our only grandchild who's 16 months old, um, Avery Lane. And um, then we have on the other side of the state, Carson, who just married Amy this last weekend. So, and he works um, in accounting with the same company that I work for, Avera. Gotcha. Okay. Well, great. And, um, and you are actually from your, your, well, currently you live, um, where do you currently live right now? And we currently live in Myrtle. We've been here for, gosh, I got to say about 28 years. I'm about ready to say that maybe I'm from Myrtle. Usually I tell everyone Denny's from Myrtle. Um, I grew up, my dad was career military, so I moved around a lot. So the staying in one spot's been a little different for me. So Myrtle, South Dakota is right there in the middle of South Dakota. Um, It's on I-90. And if you look on a map, it's where I-90 and Highway 83 meet. So we actually are four-way down um, off the interstate is really kind of busy with lots of travelers. Otherwise, it's a pretty quiet town, about 500 people. Oh, gotcha. Okay. All right. And so, um, so you said your, your, your um, father and your family of origin were in the military. Was it, was it army? Was it what, what branch of the military? My dad was career army. Career he served army. Two, tour, two tours in Vietnam. Okay. okay. He went in at a very young age. They don't even take him that young anymore. And he retired out of the service. Gotcha. And what did he do in, um, what, what was his job in, when he was in Vietnam? What was his job? Um, he was one of those ones that went in and cleared out the villages. It was not a pleasant job for him. I see. He was right in the middle of combat, right okay. out there in the rice fields and doing all those jobs that no one ever really wants to talk about. 
Gotcha. Okay. The, the, the reason why I was asking that is my dad's oldest brother um, also was career military, career, career army. He also did two tours in, in Vietnam as well, but he, his first tour, he was um, a gunner on a helicopter. And, um, and then, I, well, at least the story that I was told, I don't know if it was true or not, but the story I was told that because he survived that, um, he then became a trainer for the second tour. So he didn't have to, as a, as a general rule, he didn't have to go back up. Um, I'm not saying, I don't know if he did or didn't go back up, but as a he was more of an instructor the, sa the second time. Um, and so yeah, with my dad, it was really, um, as a child growing up, I never really understood it because he signed up volunteering to do the second tour. Mm. And I really struggled with that. Um, actually, it's really weird how I kind of grasp that. Um, I love um, the author, Danielle Steele, and she wrote a book called Return to a Vietnam. And it was about this guy who actually signed up to go back to a second tour. And that explained Vietnam to me more than any history book ever did. Mm -hmm. um, of course, they didn't talk about Vietnam much and my dad did not either. So that book just really, I think she did a very good job at portraying that about why these guys actually felt like they went back. <coughs> Excuse me, why they wanted to go back. And it's because a lot of them did not feel welcomed when they came back into the States and they left their brothers in Vietnam, their friends, to be fighting the war, and they felt more comfortable back there with helping them fight that war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you know, I, what what that reminded me of, and I've heard some of the similar similar things when I've talked to um, some veterans that I've worked with, and but it reminded me of that movie American Sniper, how there was a scene in the or a, a portion of it where he um, finds himself needing to go back. Um, because this is not those words, but what I translated as there was unfinished business. He, he, the responsibility, the guilt, the whatever it may have been. Um, that's how, at least how I was, I took away from the, that, those scenes. So, so, and then, um, I know that you, you've mentioned to me in our, in our talks that you have siblings, you have, uh, so tell us a little bit about the, your family. Excuse me there, I got that tickle in my throat. I have an older sister who actually lives here in Myrtle too. She married my husband's classmate. Funny story is, um, at our wedding dance is how she got her first job out of college. She had just graduated from college as a school teacher in a little town in Myrtle, South Dakota, was looking for a kindergarten teacher. The, super, the principal was at our wedding dance and she was there and she ended up getting an interview and got a job here. So she moved here before I even did. So she married a, a classmate of my husband's. Um, and then I have two younger brothers and both of them live over by the Sioux Falls area. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then now, um, what is outside of your hobbies of flipping homes and, and projects like that? What, what does your, what does your husband do um, for a living? And, and then also then what do you do? Well, my husband owns a local lumberyard. So that's where come flipping houses come in. <laughs> he's got the knowledge, he's got the ability and I have the credibility and he hears a lot when I say, just trust me on this one. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> we've been here now in Myrtle for about 28 years. Um, it's a nice little lumberyard thriving business. Um, and then I work up in Pier, 
It's the state capitol here. It's about 30, 60 miles away. And I work with the hospital foundation and the hospital foundations, what they do is raise money to improve healthcare. They have different programs and stuff, whether it's raising money for cancer or not. Um, I actually took the job after my son was out of high school. I stayed home with my kids. Um, and I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, but it kind of led into my passion of what I have today. And that is working in the area of suicide prevention. So with my job, I really say I have two jobs combined into one with the foundation. Um, I work with the constituents, the donors um, in the database. I run reports, I keep the database up. And then on the other side of it is I run a, a suicide prevention program for much of central South Dakota. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So why don't we kind of jump into that? How, you know, uh, for, for any of us that are involved with suicide prevention and early intervention, there's almost always a story that how, how we got involved and, um, and, and I know there was, a, you know, my story was the, of, of my, my son's, uh, his graduating class that three of his uh, classmates of, out of a hundred um, died from, died from suicide. And I was at that third funeral. Um, I, I realized that I needed to do something other than just counseling wasn't enough. I had to do something more um, because there was, as you know, there, there's all, the world stops when a young person dies uh, from suicide, but then within a short time period, the majority of people get back to normal, and um, then this this the most intimate group of family and friends of, of the person who dies, um, they don't. Um, it changes. It changes everything, and um, and I was like, well, how can we just not come together when someone dies? How can we try to make a change so so we don't have to go to another funeral? It was really kind of how it all got started for me. So so kind of tell us a little bit of how um, how how that the interest in working with this particular uh, demographic how did how did that come about? Well, when I go out and talk to kids, um, I always say this is not a career that anyone really thinks that they want to get into. Sure, it's, we say it's a club that none of us really want to belong to. And it's usually the people that are affected by suicide that gets involved in it. And back in the 1990s, Pierce, South Dakota was known as the suicide capital of the United States. We had more suicides per capita than any place else. You could do a Google search on it and it will bring, actually bring up the Today Show. They came out um, and did an interview. And what they wanted to do was at that time, my boss, um, well, she was my boss then, but 30 years ago, she got this group of people together because they were having one suicide after another and they were in their teens. And it's like, what's going on in this small community? So she brought all these people together to see what they could do in the community to stop this from happening. And the Today Show heard about that and they were like, oh, wow, you know, way back then the stigma was really high. We wanna come out and do a story on what you guys are doing to prevent this. It was one of the very first suicide preventions that you probably had heard of back then in that time. And during that time, my um, youngest brother was going through a really rough time in his life. Um, got into some drinking and just was not coping well with life. Got in trouble with the law, um, ended up doing some time in jail. Um, my dad ended up getting him into the military 
into the Marines. Um, my dad, I think, got into a little bit of trouble in high school, too, and I think that was where his dad thought that maybe it would be a good place for him, but my dad took it as a career opportunity. Um, the difference between the two of them is I always tell people when you have problems in your life, moving or getting a different job or a different relationship, you're not getting rid of those problems. They're going to go with you. Mm-hmm. So all the trouble that my brother was having went to the Marines with him. Um, he ended up attempting suicide in the Marines and he got a dishonorable discharge. Um, came back to Pierre and <clears throat> got into that same bad crowd again and he ended up attempting suicide again. This time um, it was pretty serious. We're very fortunate that he's still with us today because he should not be with us. Um, he ended up in Rochester, Minnesota for quite some time to do some damage to the left side of his face. Um, that was a tough time for me. During those times when he was getting in trouble, I had a lot of anxiety. I was waiting for that phone call to come at night, and I didn't know if it was going to be the police calling me to say he was in jail again, or he had gotten in a car wreck and killed himself, or he had gotten in a car wreck and he killed the family because there was drinking involved. So at night, usually around 10 o'clock, my anxiety level would just go extremely high. And I had, I think at that time, Carly was two and Carson was maybe around six months. Mm. So, you know, being that new mom and um, just not knowing how to cope with all that, um, that was tough. And then when he ended up in Rochester, that was the before cell phones. So when they flew him from Pierre to Rochester, we didn't know if he was going to live or make it or anything. You know, there was just no contact there. We had to stop in a couple of towns and call to see what was going on. So that drive there from Myrtle to Rochester was just awful, you know, not knowing what was going on, why it happened. It's all those questions that everyone has. And you're just sitting in a car and there's silence because no one really wanted to talk about it. Um. And then I stayed in Rochester for a while to help support my dad, you know, mentally, emotionally, helping making some of the decisions yet. But yet, um, it was hard because my kids were little and I felt that pull to have to be back to my kids. So it was that anxiety again Mm -hmm. um, of where I should be, who should be my main focus and stuff. And while I was in the hospital, one thing that amazed me was in Rochester, and this was so many years ago, of course, and it was when that stigma was really high, no one talked about what my brother did. It was just, he had an accident, is how it was worded to us. Sure. So from the get-go, we did not talk about it. It was, it was silence, even amongst our family. Okay. And, um, that created anxiety too when you just couldn't talk about it to anyone and it was almost like an embarrassment too in the community you know you felt like people were looking at you and shunning you and making comments and stuff so you just kind of wanted to hide at home um that all just kept adding to that anxiety um one day I told my husband I just need to go to pier and I went up to pier and I went to the state library and I looked up suicide I found a couple of books, um, opened the first book up, and it was all medical. Couldn't understand any of it. It was way over my head. <laughs> um, and, but it, I had a need to want to understand what was going on. But there just wasn't anything out there. <laughs> um, I believe that at that time, 
even if I could have gotten my hands on some information that I was not ready. I was not ready emotionally to do what I do now. I think God was personally telling me, Julie, you're not ready yet. You have some healing. You need to get control of your life. You need to help with this anxiety that I was so full of it. And so, you know, I kind of put it on the back burner and I got my kids raised. And that's when I applied for this job up in Pierre, got the job. Within two weeks, I found out about this um, suicide prevention committee that my boss um had and she was ready to turn it over to someone. They did great work. They were ready for new blood to come in. And I just fell into this job. Mm. Um, but kind of to begin with, it was kind of a tough sell, you know, to call people and say, you know, I'd like to come in and talk to your high school kids. Because 10 years ago, well, probably 12 years now, <coughs> there was still that stigma. And it took a while to build up that confidence with people to allow me into their schools, to be able to tell my story and how it's affected me personally, um, to break that stigma down. But I think once again, that was God saying, you know, you're not quite ready for this. Let's just kind of get our feet on the ground and slowly build this um, group. And I think when he decided that I was ready for it and when I was ready for it, the doors have opened and they have opened wide. Um, get lots of requests and get into lots of schools and to be able to share my story so it can help other kids. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Sorry about that. So that's kind of where I'm at today. Okay, all right. So, so what, um, well, let me, and I think like for, like for many people who are, uh, that share their story, and what was, what do you think for you early on, you know, for first few years after um, your brother's attempt, what things, thinking back about it, what do you think most most helped helped you in your own healing, reducing that anxiety? What do you What do you think most helped you? It probably wasn't until about eight or ten years after it happened that I was able to get a grasp on and understand what was going on to understand what anxiety was. No one even talked about it and what was causing my anxiety and why I was the way I was. I mean, um, to me, I spent a lot of time in the Bible. You could look up anxiety and I, you know, a lot of verses and, you know, doing a lot of praying. Um, I really like to do meditation. Um, those are the things that helped me. I was able to connect with some people eventually that had kind of gone through the same thing I did and was be able to talk about it. I mean, <clears throat> to, to hold that in for that many years, mm -hmm. it never felt like I could talk about it and was just ashamed that it had happened to our family, it really took a toll on me. So once I was able to talk about it with other people, it kind of started opening the doors and I started feeling some relief for it. Okay, so, so before you knew the phrase, that, that could describe what you were experiencing inside that you called anxiety, that you now call anxiety. What were you calling it before? Oh, I don't even know what I was calling it before. Honestly, I was wondering what was wrong with me. Mm. And sometimes I didn't even know the way I was. After you live with anxiety for so long, it, it's just so normal. Mm -hmm. You don't know what relaxation is. 
it, it's just a part of your life and you don't realize that it's not healthy for you. I gained a lot of weight. I was just an unhappy person. I was going through a lot of depression. When you have anxiety, you tend to want to pull away and kind of hibernate in your house. You don't want to go out and you don't want to do things because you never really know what might set that off. Um, I didn't want to be around people. So, you know, <clears throat> honestly, I thought it was pretty normal. Um, it was just the way I was. And um, I don't know if I, I don't know. It was just kind of weird. Um, it was more when I started digging into this that I started realizing that it was not normal. And um, understanding anxiety and the different ways that it can make you feel. Um, it was an eye opener there that, sure. you know, I always tell people, my dad had diabetes. Um, he never asked to have that. And I sure never asked to have anxiety or depression. <laughs> it's just something that can happen to someone and it's a medical condition. And we really need to break that um, stigma around mental health so people could get help. Um, I would never have asked this or would want this on anyone else to have to go through what I went through. And I still have anxiety and I still have some depression, but nothing like it was. And I'm really pretty in tune with my body that I could kind of feel it. I feel that depression. Um, I have that seasonal depression. And every year I say, it's not going to get me. <laughs> You're not going to get me, but it does. And I just really have to learn to live with it and kind of force myself to get out, you know, I'm just kind of, I have less energy, I don't want to get out, and don't want to do things, and um, I, I could be a bear in hibernate during mm -hmm. the long winter months in South Dakota, and, sure. yeah, and probably Minnesota too. <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's, a, and, and I think, I think that, I think that was perfectly said, because we, it, it's something that we, a person lives with, it's, it, it, you can't necessarily stop, prevent it from happening. You can do things that end up contributing to making it worse, or we can do things to maybe minimize it a little bit, but ultimately you have to work it. You have to work it. You know, that's, it's, it's mm -hmm. like I, like I, a couple of years ago, I had a back injury and my, my mom will remind me, well, Kevin, you have a bad back. And I'm like, no, I work on a daily, weekly basis to not have a bad back, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't relapse if I didn't do the stuff I need to do to be healthier, right? And so, and that's a, that's a physical thing, but there's a mental part that I have to do and an emotional part that I have to do that, that I'm not going to just get over it. I'm going to, I have to continue working it. And so um, I think sometimes that's similar to different types of mental illness as well. Um, it's, it's working with it, not thinking it's magically just going to go away. Exactly. I know I'm probably going to have this the rest of my life and, and that's okay. I'm learning how to cope with it. It sure could be a whole lot worse. Um, but yeah, when you said just get over it, Boy, that stings when people tell you that one because you cannot just get over it. I can't. I wish I could. I would give you anything just to get over it and not feel the way that I do. But I think part of the healing is accepting it, that this is what I have. This is what I'm going to deal with, but I can get through it. It's not always going to be easy. 
but I could get through this. You know, I have lots of resources and I know when that anxiety comes on, I know the things that I have to do. And same as with the depression. I think just being fully aware and being in tune with yourself on what causes those things so then you could kind of head them off helps. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and kind of swinging back around to, you know, when we, when we do talk about suicide awareness and suicide prevention programs, you know, one element is, is about, you know, that because suicide is the end result of something else, right? It's, 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 it, if we just only talk about the suicide part, then we're not, we're not really addressing the things that lead to that moment when someone believes that they can't continue doing this life, right? And if, if we address those, help them address and help them, uh, you know, because the, usually that moment for most people, it's, it's a temporary, you know, it, it may, it may, it may be <laughs> constant, but that, that darkest dark is, 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 is temporary, but it feels like it's forever. And that's what people describe it to me. Go, go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, so suicide doesn't just happen. It's accumulation of the problems that we have, and it's problems that we all have. We all have problems in our life. We all have different problems. But it's how well that we're equipped to cope with those problems. So the way I try to describe it is you just take a, a dark cloud, and you have one dark cloud up there, and that represents a problem. Then you put another dark cloud up there, and another dark cloud and keep adding those dark clouds what are problems and eventually they all come together to form that perfect storm mm -hmm. and that person who is having those thoughts of suicide and they're dealing with those problems um they're teetering back and forth they're like on a balancing scale really part of them wants to live and part of them wants to die and they're going back and forth on that balancing scale right up to the point of when they perform that act and it's so spontaneous because two seconds later, they could have been thinking of all the reasons that they wanted to live. Um, so it's really a struggle in their mind. Very rare, you know, do they just make that so spontaneously. They've been thinking about it for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, we, and, and I 100% agree with you. There is not only from the research that I've done, but then the research by, by scientists that social scientists that research it, but then also my own working with my clients as well as other survivors that I've, that I've interviewed and talked with it is that, that the, the factors that lead to that darkness doesn't mean that I'm always in that darkest aspect of it. But the more that I don't address and balance that outcome, come over toward more the light. Um, it just, it, it just, continues to suck down and um and it and it goes back to kind of like what you were saying is it affects it affects their thinking it affects our thinking and that's what um is so hard to be able to try to um uh, change that change that piece because it sounds so strong it sounds believable it's it sounds like you know this must be my truth so, so tell us a little bit about like with the program that you're that you're currently doing when you go into the schools. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how that's evolved over uh, the time period that you've been working with it. Um, so usually when I go into the schools, I ask how much time I, I have. Um, and I start out by talking about um, anxiety. 
and the majority of those have some form of anxiety. If we can't get that anxiety under control, sometimes it could lead to depression. And then I talk about the depression. If it cannot, if we can't get that anxiety and depression under control, that's where sometimes then people who have a lot of problems will start thinking about suicide. Um, so then I'll go in and I'll give them the facts about suicide and I'll give them some myths um, about suicide. And I'll kind of let them know how someone kind of gets to that point. Um, we'll talk about the clues. There's verbal clues. There's behavioral clues. Um, and we'll kind of situational clues, which are the problems. And I'll kind of go through those and I'll kind of address it more toward kids. Some of the things that kids may be going through. And then how do you help someone who's having those thoughts? You know, how I would help someone or how you would help someone is different. How I would help someone is different than how a kid would, should be able to help someone. And, and I just say, there's three things that you do. Um, you ask them if they're having those thoughts of suicide. Um, and then you get them to the help that they need. You know, you, this is one secret that we're never allowed to keep. You say, who do you want to go to? Who do you want to talk to? And you take them to that teacher or that person that they want to talk to. But you got to tell someone. And I really extra stress the importance of that. I, you know, if they say, I don't want anyone to know about this. This is really one secret in life we're not allowed to keep. Um, because it's always so much better to have a bad friend than a dead friend. And um, it, it's amazing after I get done, I always leave plenty of time. And I have kids that come up and talk to me about who they're worried about. And we go right to the school counselor and, and we get those kids that help. And someone knows, you know, it's kind of eye opening what some of those clues can be and how their behavior are. You know, they'll say, what you just described is, is one of my friends. What do I need to do? You know, so that's kind of the little program that I do. It's kind of evolved just from um, talking to the kids of what do they need, talking to the counselors and throwing some of my knowledge. Um, I did not go to school to be a counselor. I'm actually a hairdresser by trade. Um, I say that's where you develop your listening skills in life. And because people tell their hairdressers things that they won't tell anyone else. Um, so, um, this is suicide is everyone's business and anyone can stop a suicide. Um, the greatest gift you can give another human being is just the gift of listening. Um, if you could listen to someone, a lot of times that's all it takes is for them to feel like they're heard and they're validated. And you know, it's okay, you know, for someone to tell me, just get over it, that just shuts me down. But to say, I can't imagine what you're going through, what can I do to help you? I'm here for you. I don't know all the answers, but I'll help you any way I can. That's a lot more comforting than just get over it. Sure, absolutely. And I think it is it is it is trying to um, uh, break that aspect of we all have fear when it comes to suicide. Um, people who are, who are who are feeling that way, the the significant others that they may talk to, friends, family, whatever it may be, or even as professionals, there's everybody has energy up when it comes to it because it's real. And, um, and that, that if we realize that we all are going to have a, a initial fight or flight response when someone talks about it and that's normal, but that doesn't mean that we should try to shut it down by saying, get over it or shut it down by, by minimizing it, by, you know, by, you know, making it, um, 
not real, right? It's making it smaller because that blowing that off is as, as difficult for someone who's in that space to hear than if, um, if than saying just get over it, right? And so, yeah. um, and I tell kids that it's okay to say, you know, this is serious and it scares me. Mm -hmm. Who would you like to go talk to? I'll go with you. Yep. Even as an adult, it's scary. And I tell the adults, you know, if you're worried about someone, but you're afraid to ask them if they're having thoughts of suicide, just find someone who's not, you know, tell them everything that's going on and saying, I'm really kind of worried about them and have them ask the question because it's not for everyone. You know, I've developed a comfort level with it. Um, it's not to say that my anxiety doesn't get high. My heart starts pounding right before I ask that question, but it's such an important question. And seriously, the people who are having those thoughts, they're talking to you. They want help. They want you to ask that question. They're not going to come out and tell you because they're afraid of how you are going to take it. So we need to be the ones to initiate that question because then they're going to know that we're the caring people that are, hey, I'm okay. Let's talk about this very serious problem. And they'll be able to come to you at other times in their life if they're struggling because they know that you're okay with talking about things like this. Right. And and I think that was perfectly said because there is it does take courage and it's not that that energy ever goes away. It's just that we become more familiar with it and we've we've practiced it. Right. The more you practice something, um, the the better. Uh, maybe that's not the right word. The more that we practice practice something the more familiar we get with it we know we can draw on having been here before and so i think that makes it a little bit easier than avoiding it all the time so so julie now i know that uh you know not only do you go into the schools but then um you know suicide awareness month is uh, the month of September, and uh, you had how we met that you do uh, an annual walk. And how many years have you been doing the walk? This will be our um, ninth walk this year. Okay, okay. Well, congratulations. And so, uh, and so, what is with the walk? What is it? What are you really trying to do? I know it serves multiple functions, um, but what is it, what is it that you're trying to do? And um, uh, yeah, so what what is the walk? The purpose of the walk, and what are you trying to do? Even though I know it has multitude of functions. Yeah. So the first year, um, our committee um, was kind of thinking about putting a walk together. You know, this is when the stigma was still pretty high. I talked to my boss and she goes, well, what would your goals be for the walk? And I said, just for someone to show up. <laughs> <laughs> that was really my goal for that year. Um, the first year we probably had maybe about 12 or 13 teens, people who had lost loved ones to suicide. We probably have had maybe 150 to 200 people. Um, Last year, I think we had over 50 teams and we had over 700 people that came and walked um, in the walk. What we've seen over the years is the stigma. We definitely feel that that has come down. Um, people tell us our walk is one of the best ones in the community. When you think about going to a suicide prevention walk, you won't feel it as uplifting. But when people leave our walk, they do feel that. Um, it, it's kind of a mixture of emotions that day. Um, we have a mixture of crowd. We have people who are coming because they had lost that loved one. 
We have their family members that are coming to support them. We have in the last three years, um, people who are struggling that are coming to find some help and some hope. Um, and then in the last couple of years, we started having um, businesses and state um, departments put teams together to come to the walk that's saying, hey, this is a problem. It's not just a problem here, but it's a problem. And the one thing that I always say, this is not our law enforcement's problem. This is not our hospital's problem. And this is not our school's problem. It's everyone in the community's problem. And I think that's one thing that we've really gotten throughout Central South Dakota. We have teachers that put teams in. Um, so we've really seen that difference. So when we look at our walk, we're trying to give people hope, whether you've lost a loved one that, yes, it's tough, but there is hope that things are gonna get better for you. Um, for people who are struggling that we wanna give them hope. So really hope is our big word um, that we have with the walk. Um, what else can I say about it? Um, it's, it we, uh, we always try to find a speaker who can give our crowd a message. And that's kind of hard. You know, when I talk about that, you know, we have really three different crowds there, you know, to kind of address all three different people um, that are there. Um, and we just want people to go with that when they leave there there's a sense of sadness that is there, but yet when people come to the walk, they realize that they're not alone. But we have this huge group of people. Um, one of the committee members that we have, um, Rick Doctor, he will tell you that um, he lost his son, I don't know how many years ago now, probably at least 17 years ago, maybe, at the age of 14, and he will tell you that his healing started at the walk just to be able to see the people and knowing that he was not the only one going through this problem. And there are other people that were there to support him through his grief. So knowing you're not alone, knowing that there's other people on different air, different, um, uh, different aspects of their journey of healing through the grief. Um, hopefully, uh, also a message of, uh, of inspiration um, of that of that hope as well. Um, and then I imagine just just the comradeship that 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 kinship that ends up happening on the walk, because we're honoring either ourselves or someone else because that's why we're there. And so there's a, but it, it, there's, there also probably is an opportunity to not only being sacred and solemn, but there's also probably an opportunity for laughing and uh, that, that connection with somebody or reconnecting with someone that they may not have seen since the last walk, right? Yeah, you really see that how when people first come, you know, they have their team t-shirts on and they're kind of standing in their little huddle, but as the walk goes on, they're all kind of mingling and those t-shirts are just kind of everywhere. And we just really um, honoring those loved ones. I mean, I have a good friend who lost her son to suicide, but she'll tell you that she lost her son due to depression. Mm -hmm. Depression is what ultimately got her son. And it's okay to say their names. You know, when my brother went through his trouble and his attempt, I didn't feel like I could talk about it at all. And we want them to be able to come and talk about their loved ones. Tell me something about it. When I meet up with someone who has just lost someone, the first thing I do is say, say tell me about your son. I want to know him. Mm -hmm. 
And that just, that's a healing thing. They want to talk about their loved ones. And they, any memories that you have of them, sure, they may cry when they hear about those memories. But those are the last memories that they have, the last thoughts that they have of those loved ones. And they want you to talk about that. So we're able to talk about that and people can mingle and say, I remember your child when he was in kindergarten and those stories always come out. Of course, we're a smaller community and those teams get together and it's amazing how they're all intertwined together and how there's connections, even throughout Central South Dakota, how people will know them and meet up with them. And you're right, it's like one big reunion to a club that none of us want to belong in, but we are, we're making the best of it. You you um, have mentioned a couple times now Central South Dakota. What what is the what's the the range of Central South Dakota? Like when you say that, what's uh, from from east to west? Uh, what's the what's what would be encompassed with uh, Central South Dakota? Well, all the way up to the North Dakota, all the way down to the Nebraska border. I would say we have a radius of probably about hundred and fifty miles if you just draw a big circle right around here. But we have people that even come from Sioux Falls and um, Rapid City. So we have people that kind of come from all over the place um, for the walk. You know, their loved one may have been from here and that's why they come back to the pier walk instead of doing the Sioux Falls one. Some people do multiple walks because that, that's just healing for them. Um, so yeah, we try to really serve that Central South Dakota area. You know, we're just out here in the middle and we don't have a lot of resources. So um, it's been a good thing for Central South Dakota. Sure, sure. So this year, 2020, in the midst of COVID and the pandemic and everything that's going on. <laughs> so, uh, so this is this is gonna this is kind of forced you guys to do things a little bit different. So why don't you tell us about? And your and your walk is on September 12th. Um, and what time? What times it start? September twelfth, uh, Saturday, September twelfth. And what times it start? It starts at nine o'clock. Okay. So one of the neat things about our walk is we've always tried to keep it short and sweet. Okay. I can remember years ago we had this pastor Murdo, and he said he his very first day, his very ser- first sermon. He said, you know, if I can't get up here and say it in ten minutes, I shouldn't be talking. <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> so we try to keep our walk short, even if it's not a virtual walk. <clears throat> we are usually, um, the walk starts at 9. We are done and cleaned up and out of there by 1130. Okay. We have a nice little program. Um, they just walk around the Capitol Lake. We don't, you could sign up a team. We don't make you go out and fundraise and do all this stuff. Um, our message is more important than the money and the money always comes. Gotcha. It just always, we, we always get that to come. So this year with COVID and with us being affiliated with a healthcare facility, um, we are doing our walk virtually this year. So the walk is going to be where we hired a production company. And I told them, I said, what I need from you is to make the people feel like they are at the walk, like they've been coming to it the last eight years. I want them to feel like they are there. So we're going to run the program, the walk, like we always have done it. The only difference is when we take a break and we walk around that state capitol, we will not be doing that. Otherwise, everything else will be the same um, the day of the walk. So it will start at nine. We're going to do some live streaming. 
All the information um, for the walk is on our Facebook page and that's called the Foundation of Hope Central South Dakota. You can find that there and really COVID has kind of changed things. Sometimes it, it, you know, you can look at the bad side of it and you can look at the good side. I think the good side of it is, you know, our range of audience is going to be huge. We can have the potential to have a lot of people view our walk compared to in the past. Um, you know, just 700 people coming, maybe we could double that, that 1400 people actually saw our message. So that's what we're really trying to work on is how can we get this message out? How can we get this um, so more people can see it? Um, so it will start at nine. I'm going to say that is probably going to be done at 10. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, great. So, um, and, uh, and I know you have a, a bunch of things, you know, obviously still to, to, to get in place and to, and to help promote it and, um, and all those types of things. And, and now, um, are you with, with obviously COVID, obviously that's going to be changing some of the things that, regarding getting to the schools at a time period when people's anxieties are higher. Uh, there's obviously mental, just because COVID came in didn't mean mental, mental illness uh, went out the you know, one out. Um, and I, I know at least here in Illinois, we in Illinois, Wisconsin, we've seen a lot of our, um, uh, we've seen, we've definitely seen an increase in uptick in, in uh, people seeking out mental illness or mental health treatment because of an increased anxiety and depression. Have you, have you been seeing similar in, in central South Dakota? Yeah, our schools have just gotten back um, and going, and I think they are seeing a lot of that. I think some of the teachers are kind of worried what we need to be looking at. So all the money that we raise this year is going to go right back into our schools for mental health and wellness. What can we do, whether we bring in programs for mindfulness for the kids, um, maybe some yoga classes for the kids, um, some different speakers that could speak from a kindergarten level up to a high school level. And of course, all that is probably going to be done virtually. You know, it is it, kind of changed the way that we do a lot of trainings um, now. So that's kind of what our focus is on this year. How can we support the schools? You know, the schools know what they need. Sometimes they just don't have that funding. And can we be a resource to help them with those things that they need is really what we're kind of focusing on this year. Okay. Perfect. So, Julie, as we get ready to wrap up, what would be for any listeners out there, regardless if they're, uh, well, because of the walk is virtual, they can be here, you know, where I'm at in Northern Illinois, or they could be, you know, obviously, well, anywhere in the country or, or whoever is wherever they're listening. Um, what would be for the listeners in general, if there was anything that you wanted to share either about the walk or about suicide awareness and prevention, if there's anything you'd want to leave them with, what would you want to leave them with? Well, now more than ever, we need their donations because um, it is going back into the schools. Like you said, you know, the mental health did not go away because COVID came in. I think it just accumulated some more problems within our kids. So they could go on to that Foundation of Hope Central South Dakota Facebook page and they could see where they can make those donations. I mean, everything counts from a $5 donation up to whatever. You know, it's amazing what we could do with that money. Um, we're very thrifty as our group. Um, we have t-shirts that we sell and every year we pick three positive saying t-shirts. Those are on there and you could just um, 
Facebook me, you can send me a message. We will ship those out to you. And that's one of the ways that we make money. Um, we'll be posting the information, how you'll be able to watch it on Facebook Live. Um, we're working on doing some pretty great things, we think, this year to make the walk, like I said, to make you feel like you're actually down along that Capitol Lake um, in Pier. Um, and we hope that the messages that we give, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about my anxiety. And Kevin, you're going to be talking about resilience, that we give people some coping skills of what they could do to help them feel better and just you know, I know when I go out and talk about my anxiety, I'll have kids that come up to me and say, thank you for sharing that. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I think the more that we could share those things and let kids know, adults know that, hey, this is okay. There is help for you. And I think that's what our main message is. And suicide prevention truly is everyone's business. We all need to be aware we need to be aware of those clues that I talked about, you know, those behavioral clues, those verbal clues, those situational clues. You could look those up online. Um, if someone is going through a lot of problems, start paying attention to them and be there for them because it's accumulation of all those problems. It's hardly ever just one problem that tips someone over to that deaf side. They're usually coping with a lot. And remember that greatest gift that you could give another human being is just that gift of listening. When I'm talking to someone who is struggling, I tell you, honestly, I feel like a bobblehead because my head is just bobbing. I'm making that eye contact to them and I'll just be telling, tell me more about that. How does that make you feel? What else do you have going on in their life? And I know for me, just personally, when I could talk about the things that are bugging me, I could just feel my anxiety level going down. So just being able to let someone do, just do that dump and let them just open up to you really is suicide prevention right there. It is not complicated. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 it's, it's, that's well stated that suicide and a person being in the mindset, in the suicidal mindset is complex and complicated, but what we can do um, really is just those simple things. Uh, being able to listen, being willing to have the courage to tell, tell a safe person, um, fight that silence that we all have a tendency to gravitate toward um, mm -hmm. when, when, we're, when we're scared and when we're feeling anxious about it. But listening and really empathizing with where the person's at, with what is leading them there and getting to know their story. I think that was really, really well said, Julie. So Julie, I'm looking forward to us working together and, uh, and, and on the 12th and everything that's happening at that time. Again, it's, uh, the, the walk is on September 12th, Saturday, September 12th, um, 9 o'clock. I know we'll have some information about how you can get into that link and how you can sign up for that. Um, so we'll, we'll attach that um, as well so people can find, find that and then um, come and be part of it regardless of where, where you physically are located. This is one of those opportunities that it doesn't have to be a, a, a long road trip to get there. It can be um, right where you're at. Exactly. And the link will stay up on there. So if you can't be there Saturday at nine o'clock a.m., you'll still be able to watch it. So just make the time to pop in and watch those speakers. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Julie, thank you. Thank you very much for all that you're doing. And, um, and thanks uh, for you being able to take your pain and your story and being able to uh, carry that to help other people. So again, thank you very much. And uh, good luck with everything as you're getting ready for the 12th. Thank you, Kevin, for this opportunity.
Okay, we'll talk to you soon.